0: When squatting, what do you believe the risk-reward is for Oli shoes and some sort of healing? Good morning, happy Sunday. I have, as usual, my neuro coffee. I gotta tell you, this was a spectacular batch today. I'm not sure why I made it the same, but it's really, really good. So a couple quick updates. Um, yesterday, we did the uh, Bubs Burger food challenge which is a, a, a pre-cooked weight of 22 ounces of hamburger, a half a pound of bun plus the veggies and uh, as expected I put the boys to shame so I finished two of them which is actually a PR for me um, the boys didn't quite make two so um, I was the winner this is makes me 3-0 in food challenges with employees and interns so uh, the next group of interns better be ready for me. Um, we're going to have to come up with a different food challenge, I think. Um, so maybe we'll go pizza. Maybe we'll go ice cream. Not really sure. But anyway, I want to just rub that in just a, one more time um, before we move on with life. And so uh, that was fun. We had a great time at Bub's. And, and if you haven't been to Bub's, it is, it is world famous. It was on Man vs. Food. Um, and uh, so again, once again, had a great time. So this week on YouTube... Um, if you haven't seen last week's Q&A, it is up there. Uh, I did a, a podcast with the with the quarterback docs, the QB docs. So that was uh, with uh, Drew Keel. And so that is out there um, on iTunes. And I threw up a couple of highlight videos, one on, on YouTube, so you can get to see that. The uh, iFast podcast uh, number six, uh, where Mike Roberts and I talk about our, our client foundation and how we work with those people. So that's actually... Um, a really, really good podcast for for those of you uh, who run your own businesses. And then I posted a uh, um, shoulder mobilization, so manual therapy to increase shoulder flexion and cervical rotation, which is incredibly useful. We also explain a little bit more about the Camperini angle, which a lot of people don't quite understand yet, um, but I'm sure that will become prolific as it usually does. Um, I've also thrown up, A couple of things related to a question or actually two questions today on the q and a there will be new videos posted today but i'll talk about those as we go through the q and a up on instagram we talked about treatment sequencing the terry project if you haven't seen the terry project results are pretty spectacular Terry's a a a friend of mine that came in for a little bit of posture help he's not a painful client and so he has agreed to let all of his progress be be seen um, worldwide on the internet and he's doing a great job. He is totally committed to this process in showing some amazing changes. So, check that out on Instagram. Um, we talked about thorax shape and how it influences shoulder internal and external rotation measures. So, that was a big deal. Um, the, again, the quarterback duck uh, podcast highlights. And, of course, the videos for the 16% were up on Instagram this week. So, let's <clears throat> dig right in to this week's questions. First, question comes from uh, Taylor. And Taylor asks, when squatting, what do you believe the risk-reward is for Oli shoes and some sort of heel lift? I know the obvious benefits and risks, but in your opinion, which outweighs the other? Does it put that much more stress on the knees? Does it allow you to stack your pelvis better? Or, And I'm assuming he's asking me, does it acquire more hip IR? And so um, I think people are looking for some sort of uh, black and white answer when they ask questions like this but the reality is is that nothing that we do is ever black and white and so what we have to do is we have to consider the n equals one concept it's like who are we talking about and so does a heels elevated squat alter the way that load is distributed throughout the system absolutely and so if we elevate the heel is there the the chance that load is being shifted towards the knee absolutely does the compressive force on the anterior part of the knee increase as you squat deep absolutely so again we have to consider who we're talking about are we talking about an adaptive olympic weightlifter Um, are we talking about my 86 year old mother are we talking about a 4 year old accountant that sits behind a desk? We have to take all of these things into consideration. So for instance, if I have somebody that has a tibiofemoral external rotation problem at the knee, then I know that uh, I have a situation here that could limit knee flexion. And so in that case, I may not choose this strategy unless I can recover that, that full knee flexion. And so again, you have to take these things into, into consideration. If we understand the elements of what a heel lift provides in a favorable way, and if we understand the potential detrimental effects of a heel's elevated squat, then we can apply it to the individual. We always have to apply these things to the individual. So, Taylor, I'm sure this is not the answer that you wanted um, based on the way that you've asked it, but I hope you understand that we have to look at the multifactorial nature of all of these things. And so expanding our viewpoint, expanding our understanding of what these heels elevated squats can and cannot do, and what they may do from a detrimental aspect, I think that that allows us to make an informed decision. And then, again, we always provide our safe-to-fail experimental uh, environment whenever we're introducing anything new, and then that's how we decide whether this is a good thing or not so good thing. So thank you for that question. My next question comes from Tyler, Tyler asks... How would you approach working with a patient that was diagnosed with a condition related to central sensitization, such as fibromyalgia or complex regional pain syndrome? Are there any specific compensatory strategies you have found that drive central sensitization? So let me address the second half of that question first, and I'll just give you a big fat no. I don't think that there's necessarily any compensatory strategies that would lead to anything specific in regards to that central adaptation. But as far as any diagnosis, um, I think we always have to consider the fact that the entire system is always involved. And so with any diagnosis, with any situation, uh, because the nervous system is involved, I think there's always going to be an element of central sensitization. The question is, is, is there an adaptation or is there rigidity in the system that may skew the influence in one direction or the other. So when we talk about CRPS where we know we have most likely some form of immune system influence we definitely have a central issue um, that definitely involves the brain. So we have situations uh, under those circumstances where that might be the predominant Uh, influence now we have to look at a whole different set of strategies from spatial and perceptual strategies or desensitization strategies Um, in all cases movement is obviously part of this but again with something like crps where we have such a strong autonomic influence um, those are the toughest people to work with but but let me offer you this if you look at the delayed onset muscle soreness literature, you will see that there is a component of central sensitization under those circumstances. And so when we're working with these people, it, again, doesn't eliminate um, any particular strategy that we may use. However, we may have to emphasize different aspects of our treatment repertoire where again um, with CRPS and maybe we're using a mirror if we're looking at chronicity we're looking at graded motor imagery concepts to help us establish um, new perceptual influences that will hopefully favorably influence those patients so again in every case the central nervous system is going to be involved. In every case, all of your sensory systems are going to be involved. In every case, the movement system is going to be involved. The question that becomes is how much of each is representative as the predominating factors. And that comes down to your processes, to how you evaluate someone, and then how you introduce each element that influences these systems. So once again, I I hope that this is a really, really good question, but it's a really tough situation. Um, To try to influence under certain circumstances, but understand that every system is involved at every time and that's the important thing to understand My next question comes from Drew Brooks And Drew is is my keen guy. He's my guy that uses the word keen. So thanks again Drew for throwing that one in there Here is Drew's question. So for YDSM Wide ISA, so wide infrasternal angle individual trying to regain his or her squat pattern. What progressions do you use after, say, a goblet, kettlebell, or squat? Um, In light of Mike Robertson's complete coaching course, I think the safety squat bar will be a good squat progression, allowing you to load the squat pattern and keep the posterior thorax open for expansion. Do you use the safety squat bar much in load progress of the squat pattern? Thanks again, Mr. Keene. Mr. Keene, Drew Brooks, thank you so much for the question. Um, First and foremost, let me just say that that, um, you should probably get out there and purchase Mike's coaching course. I will not speak for Mike. Um, in that regard and and so i would just suggest you you take the course it is it is stellar and and top of the line Um, but uh, drew you bring up a really really good good question in regard to the the progression of the squat pattern Um, we do use the goblet kettlebell and your squats all in an element to create the expansive strategy uh, that is typically challenged by those folks with the compensatory wide infrasternal language, because again, that's representative of an axial skeleton that is exhaled and compressed. And so they use the, the wide ISA as a compensatory strategy to to inhale. Um, moving towards the safety squat bar is a very useful st- strategy. In fact, I use it in combination often with, with box squats. I'll use it with, um, the, the static squat. So we'll use it for, for overcoming situations. We'll use it for yielding situations. Um, and I, I do love that. I, I am uh, more skewed towards favoring the, the spider bar in regards to the safety squat bar because the spider bar allows us to reach forward and it keeps the upper extremity and, and the scapula in that, that inhaled uh, representation when we talk about uh, range of motion arcs and, and things like that. So I, I do like the use of the safety squat bar. The thing you just have to be careful with is is because we're dealing with somebody that may be using a compressive strategy, you do still have to attend to scapular position. You still have to attend to uh, addressing the, the, the breathing element to make sure that I start in that Uh, inhaled bias when we're trying to overcome the 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 axial compressive strategies but definitely love the progression of going from uh, heels elevated goblets and kettlebell squats zerger squats and like I said use of the safety squat bar with along with the the box squat because again very very useful exercises many many variations on a theme so Drew thank you for that question and uh, I appreciate you sticking with the Keene concept. I got a series of questions from Ryan, so we're gonna knock these out one at a time. Uh, Ryan starts out with, how do you determine if a proxy measure of the extremity is pathological? And so he's referring to ligamentous laxity or capsular instability. On the opposite end, how would you determine a true tissue extensibility limitation, assuming you've maximized axial position and respiratory variability how would you treat these two uh, presentations differently? Okay, so let's attack this um, from the beginning. It's like, how do you determine proxy measures in the extremities pathological? Well, first and foremost, the history is going to give you a lot of information in, in that regard. So if somebody has a dislocation uh, episode of some sort, then chances are you're going to be dealing with some some form of, of tissue adaptation or or a traumatic instability. And so, again, when when you have a history like that, um, we, we're going to make an assumption that we do have a, a pathology. I think a lot of people, and I think this is where your question is going, is that when we get a measure that seems to be um, abnormal in regard to a, an, a larger excursion than expected, a lot of people will jump on the bandwagon and they, oh, we have ligamentous laxity. So the thing that you have to consider under those situations is, If we have an orientation of the thorax or an orientation of the pelvis, we can get a magnification of what we perceive as to be the normal excursion range of motion. So let me give you for instance. So if I can anteriorly orient a pelvis enough that the acetabulum is is facing more downward, I can get uh, an excessive amount of total excursion of hip range of motion so under normal circumstances we might say that external rotation is 60 from the imaginary zero point and, and 40 degrees of internal rotation from the imaginary zero point so that's a hundred degrees of excursion but if I can actually orient that pelvis enough I get an acetabular position that allows it I might even capture 120 to 130 degrees of total hip excursion but that's just an orientation problem that is not indicative of, of the fact that somebody has developed some some imaginary capsular laxity, so don't immediately rush to judgment under those circumstances. Secondarily, I don't know how much that changes things a whole lot. Anyway, the goal is to acquire dynamic control of orientation of the axial skeleton and dynamic control of, of the excursion of the peripheral joints. And that's a muscular control issue um, rather than just looking at, at the laxity issues. Granted, we might have some proprioceptive deficits that are associated with a true laxity or some form of traumatic laxity that occurs. But under most circumstances, I think that's going to be determined through process. So when I have somebody that can't consistently recapture position, or can't hold on to their changes, now you may have a situation where we have a structural adaptation that is influencing the outcome. And that might be when we have to make the consult with the orthopedic surgeon under those circumstances. But that's how you're gonna determine this, Ryan. It's gonna be part of the process. It's not about making an immediate leap because people overcome things all the time. People walk in with rotator cuff tears, they're they're able to overcome those. People come in with with these perceived laxities and they're able to overcome those. So again, I always default to, you make the attempts first, you run yourself through the process and you see what they can reacquire. You see what they can can learn to control. And if that doesn't work, that's when you start to to make the assumption that, okay, maybe I do have a situation where structure has changed to such a degree that that I need to, to bring in another element of of service or integration. So hopefully that answers that that first part. When we talk about a a tissue, would you call it a tissue extensibility limitation? So the thing that pops into my head under those circumstances are are situations where maybe we have a, a person that comes in that has been diagnosed with a frozen shoulder. And so under those circumstances, what would happen as you run through the process, as you attempt your global or more systemic influences, in, in, in treatment, you'll see that, that you don't get the local changes that you expect. And so in that circumstance, now you need to think about what you have in your toolbox that will address those local issues. And so maybe you do have a tissue adaptation that can occur under those circumstances. And so again, that's gonna be just a longer process. And so your strategies will be a little bit different. Because if you're truly looking at a tissue adaptation, it's rare. It's rare, I think, that those situations actually occur. I, I think there's a lot of other influences that are going on in regard to the way that the nervous system is behaving, and based on the way that those those changes take place. Because some of those adaptations, if they were if they were true, um, I don't think um, all of those would be recapturable. Um, especially with some of the capsular adaptations and then the aggression with which you would have to apply forces to make those changes. Um, Having worked with a a fair amount of of people that have been diagnosed with frozen shoulders and and seeing what is truly um, able to be recaptured, I don't think that we're looking at those adaptations necessarily. I think we're looking at a lot of influences of of the nervous system which can occur locally. Um, we do have environmental, local environmental changes in regard to the, the shape change of, of the proteins themselves. So we talk about the contractile elements changing. And so those environments can change with, with different forms of, of manual therapy, different influences of, of medication, um, et, et cetera. So again, um, I don't think that they occur as much as many people blame them on. I think that we just need to look at, at expanding our perspective in our toolbox um, but under those circumstances, if you do have a true tissue limitation, then maybe you're, you're looking at a very, very long-term strategy in, in regards to trying to add length to tissues. And that would be using um, some of your dynosplint strategies, perhaps. Um, a, a lot of um, time and effort you um, applied by the client to restore that, that range of motion through repetition and avoiding situations where you're, you're creating a, a uh, negative influence associated with, with pain and discomfort at end ranges and just reacquiring some of that range of motion through de- desensitization strategies. So I think that there's, there's many ways to go about this, but again, I caution you to make against making that leap, that, that you're making an assumption that you do have a, a, a tissue change. They do most likely occur, I just don't think they occur as often as we think. The second half of Ryan's question uh, piggybacks off of a question from last week where he asked, what tests or measures do you apply to determine whether the elbow is oriented towards ER pronation or IR supination? Um, Ryan, this is actually pretty straightforward because, assuming we're doing table tests and such, we would have... our our axial representation, we would have extremity measures that we would have taken that would tell us whether we have a humeral position in external rotation or internal rotation, Um, again, based on those table tests. And then it's just a matter of looking at the the pronation and supination available at the elbow. And so, if we have identified a shoulder that is in, in humeral, external rotation, um, we would stabilize that the the epicondyle at the elbow. We would check our pronation, supination, and and come up with a determination what we're looking at in in the forearm. However, I would offer you this that you probably need to look at the wrist for confirmation of that forearm. Uh, position because in some cases you may have eccentric orientation at the elbow or concentric orientation of the elbow that will skew your perspective so if we add the wrist measures into this so we've got a shoulder, we've got an elbow and now we've got the wrist measures if you uh, have a deficit in ulnar deviation and extension you most likely have a pronated forearm and if you have a a deviation inflection Radial deviation. Then you probably have a supinated forearm. and that's just the orientation of the of the the distal uh, radial ulnar position. Um, when the form is pronated, there is a, 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 a this perceived retraction of the of the radius that would position it more towards um, radial deviation, and and the ulna would appear long under those circumstances. So we would lose that that ulnar deviation. So that's what occurs in pronation as the radius crosses over the ulna. So just being aware of that, now you have your, your shoulder, elbow, and wrist um, providing you that information to give you the de- determination of what, what position and orientation you're looking at at the elbow. And then it's just a matter of, do I need a propulsive strategy? Do I need a, a, an inhalation strategy? And then um, what orientation do I need to put the forearm and, and, and uh, humerus into to restore the ability to, to capture that full excursion at the elbow again? So Ryan has a a third part to his question, Um, and it it goes as such: from a practical standpoint, what do we do with a narrow Camperini angle versus a wide Camperini angle? I understand that is a representation of the superficial helical angle that compresses the underlying axial helices, Um, but how does it actually change our approach to gaining more variability or more performance? Okay, so let's. So the camperini angle is the angle formed by the clavicle and the scapula with with its with its apex at the the midpoint of the acromion. And and so what this actually does measure is how much of a compressive strategy that we have with the superficial musculature. So it's not representative of the superficial helical angle as much as it is representative of how much of a compression strategy we have. So if we have superficial musculature that is compressing the axial skeleton, what happens is, is the the scapula will begin to elevate. And so we get this compression between the, the anterior and posterior aspect of clavicle scapula. And so it compresses that angle and it rides up on the uh, the thorax. And so that's why we get this narrowing of the angle. So normal angle is about 60 degrees, give or take. And uh, so if we see that we, we have a compressed angle, uh, angle there, then we know we have a much more superficial uh, compressive strategy. So from an approach standpoint, there are any number of ways that we can actually reduce that compressive strategy. So so under many circumstances, we may just be able to to reorient the, the movement system such that we reduce the compressive strategy and so we would see an expansion of of that Camperini angle. Um, There's a a video on YouTube that I talked about earlier that shows a manual technique to actually reduce that compressive strategy. In the gym we may use something like a suitcase carry that actually reduces that that strategy. And so again, there's any number of ways. But uh, as far as using that measurement, it is a useful measurement, it's not an absolute by any stretch of the imagination, obviously because we named it after one of the Padawans, so I'm just giving them a hard time. But again, what I don't want you to do is, is um, think that it, it changes a lot in regard to, to what strategy you may be using. It's just a matter of reducing that, that upper thorax compressive strategy that uh, uh, tends to accompany the, the sequence of, of exhalation based strategies for those people that are um, restricted in their breathing excursion. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of strategy and a little bit of understanding of the Camperini angle. So our next question comes from Brian and Brian asked why might we use rolling activities for a wide infrasternal angle and quadruped activities for a narrow infrasternal angle? So. First, if if we understand what the wide ISA represents, so that is a compensatory inhalation strategy against an exhaled axial skeleton. And so what we have to do to restore full breathing excursion is we have to reduce the compensatory inhalation strategy and restore that dynamic uh, infrasternal angle. And so what we can do with rolling activities, so if we're doing forward shoulder rolls, Because of the the diagonal nature of that, we can actually teach someone to exhale more effectively in a forward shoulder roll. And that may actually help us reduce that compensatory inhalation strategy because to effectively roll forward, I have to be able to exhale under those circumstances. And so then the rolling becomes useful. Another strategy that we use is actually a log rolling technique. So that is rolling along the long axis of the body And because of the the wide infrasternal angle actually represents a widening of the thorax and the pelvis. So it's a reduction of the anterior posterior diameter and an expansion of the medial lateral aspect of of that. And so by going through the log rolling activity, we actually compress the the thorax again, and helping us to uh, reduce the compressive strategy anterior posterior and allowing that expansion to occur. So those are two ways that we can use rolling activities um, for the wide ISA. When we talk about quadruped activities for the narrow ISAs, what the narrow ISA represents is actually a straightening of the ribs. And so, if I was to represent the, the infrasternal angle with my fingertips here, so, so the thumbs represent the spine, and I've got a relatively round thorax, and let's just say I have some sort of uh, normal dynamic ISA. But if I have a straightening of the rib cage, you can see that the, that the infrasternal angle would become more narrow. And so what we need to do under those circumstances is we need to be able to bend, bend the ribs. One of the easiest ways to do that is to put people in quadruped. Now, if we look at compensatory strategies for the narrow infrasternal angle, as the infrasternal angle narrows, they create a posterior compressive strategy below T8. And, and so under those circumstances, For me to bend the ribs, I need to create expansion posteriorly from T8 uh, inferiorly. And so one of the great things about quadruped is if I put you uh, such that your your hands are below the shoulders in quadruped, that puts the shoulder about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, which is mid-range through where the the scapula would be upperly rotating which creates a posterior compression in the posterior upper thorax and then the dorsal rostral thorax is compressed and then that provides us a way to expand below the level of the scapula as we inhale and so again quadruped becomes this great strategy for people with narrow prosternal angles assuming that they're strong enough to support themselves through the upper extremity because we're bending the ribs we're widening the ISA uh, and we're expanding the posterior rib cage below the level of the scapula, so from, from about T8 on down. And so that's why we would use this quadruped strategy for narrow ISAs. So my next question comes from Max, and Max says, uh, with respect to internal pressure of the guts in the diaphragm, with a high rate of force production, and say a high box jump, you'd want a diaphragm that can concentrically yield and concentrically overcome very, very quickly. Max, you are 100% correct. That you are on it. And so yes, every time we want this low amplitude type of an activity, especially when we're looking at where the extremity is relatively extended and the, the axial skeleton is rel- relatively upright. So when we think about a low amplitude jump or a, a, a quick counter movement jump where there's not a lot of descent involved, the uh, pelvic diaphragm um, will have to concentrically orient very, very quickly. Because we're taking that quick dip, and the faster that we can turn turn that around, the faster we can get the guts elevated and then push up against it. And so again, Max, you are absolutely correct. In fact, I posted a video on YouTube today um, explaining that fact exactly um, as you have asked it. So please check that out. And I hope you find that one useful. So my last question today comes from Tim, and Tim says, please, please, please. Elaborate on how getting into a cut is external rotation and out of a cut is internal rotation in my myopic acetabulum on femur way of looking at things. It seems as if loading should be acetabulum on on femur internal rotation and exploding should be the reverse. Thanks for all the content. So Tim, um, so here's what I did for you, buddy. I did a long form video on YouTube talking about cutting just for you because I thought this was such a great question. I think a lot of people misunderstand exactly what's going on on with cutting. Cutting is actually a mirror as you go into and out of the cut. The biggest difference that you see is what's going on with the internal forces. So what we have to do with with going into and out of the cut is make sure that we know what direction those internal forces are going and then we have to be able to redirect them. And so that's the big challenge of getting into and out of the cut. And so the, the internal and external rotation representations are the same going into and out of. So so one is not external rotation, one is not internal rotation. And what you'll see on that video will answer your question. So thanks again, Tim. It was a great question. So that about wraps up the Q&A for December 15th. I hope it was useful. And I hope you have your neurocopy as I do. I, again, I'm going to go sit back and enjoy this and, and do a little editing. And I'll see you guys next week.